What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Thank you very much, Frank, and hi, everybody. Welcome to our special two-hour coverage of today's Fed decision. I'm Kelly Evans, along with Tyler Matheson. We're an hour away from the most complicated Fed rate decision of Jay Powell's tenure, balancing the health of the banks against the fight against inflation. And it is quite a needle to thread. Will they hike, pause, pivot? Uh, That's the big question. Stocks are lower ever so slightly ahead of the big moment. The Dow down just about 100 points right now. The 10-year yield sitting at 3.56. And let's get a check on the banks. The KBE down 1.5%. A battered regional bank, First Republic, down more than 4% right now. Uh, Actually, two and three-quarter percents come back uh, just a little bit. Uh, We have full team coverage of this big decision and its implications, and they go far and wide. We'll get to all of it from the economy to the markets to your money and what you're paying for credit cards, auto loans, mortgages and more. Plus an all-star lineup of guests, including former Atlanta Fed President uh, Dennis Lockhart. But before we go any further, let's take a step back and look at how we got here and why this decision is so consequential uh, for the markets, the economy, and more. Kelly. Tyler, thank you very much. So let's start way back at the beginning, about three years ago today, when the U.S. was thrown into a pandemic lockdown that sparked an incredibly deep recession. But the bounce back was also sharp, and most policymakers missed that fact until it was too late. For instance, pre-COVID, the U.S. economy was $21.7 trillion in size. Less than a year later, it had not only fully recovered, but it hit new highs, $22 trillion, and it didn't stop there. By the second half of 2022, the economy was more than 13 percent larger than it was in 2020. And that's thanks to, drumroll please, Washington. According to economist and former Obama official Christina Romer, government fiscal stimulus in total topped $5 trillion. At the same time, the Fed expanded its bond buying program by $4.8 trillion, even backstopping corporate debt for the first time ever. That's $10 trillion in stimulus that so overpowered the economy, we ended up with massive inflation. Fed Chair Powell stopped calling it transitory at the end of 2021, but he didn't hike rates until March of 2022. Officials then scrambled to catch up. By last June, inflation soared to 9% and rate hikes ratcheted up to 75 basis points at a clip. In total, rates went from zero a year ago to 4.6% today, the fastest and steepest move in history, which brings us to the bank crises. Cash started leaving the banks to take advantage of high rates elsewhere, forcing banks like SVB to realize losses on lower yielding securities in order to pay out those deposits. SVB collapsed in the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. We also had Signature shuttered, purchased by a rival. Silvergate closed its own doors. Credit Suisse imploded. First Republic needed a deposit infusion and has been teetering. In total, struggling banks tapped the Fed for nearly $300 billion in emergency loans last week, abruptly halting efforts to shrink its enormous balance sheet. And all of this leaves the Fed in a very precarious place right now. 
now. Do Powell and company keep hiking rates to fight inflation or pump the brakes to avoid a larger credit crunch and a potentially deep recession? We'll get the answer, Ty, in less than an hour. All right, Kelly, thank you. Let's go straight to our first all-star panel of guests. Barry Bannister is chief equity strategist at Stiefel. Subhadra Rajapa is head of U.S. rates strategy at Societe Generale. And Seth Carpenter is global chief economist at Morgan Stanley. We also have Steve Leisman. We have Rick Santelli. We've got Dom Chu. Steve, you're live in Washington and heading into the room uh, with Mr. Powell in just a few minutes. Let's start with you. Uh, I guess tension is a little higher than normal. Describe the scene for us. Well, you know, we usually go into this a meeting like this with 100% probability of what the Fed's going to do, hike, pause, or cut. There's an 82% probability, which is pretty good, but it still leaves room for some questions about what exactly is going to happen. And, and I think there may be some reckoning on the backside of this because the market, as you know, Tyler, is baking in qu quite a few substantial rate cuts uh, later this year. Um, it had been sort of in sync with the Fed, but since the banking crisis, they've gone their separate ways. So we'll see what happens with the uh, summary of forecast, which is uh, it could go up to 537 today. It could go up by a quarter um, while the market really is down at 440. So that gap between the market and the Fed could increase depending upon what Powell says, how he says it. Does he, you know, raise his left eyebrow while he uh, you know, shakes his uh, right hand, does that cause the market to say, well, wait a second, maybe what that means is we need to be higher so there's an adjustment that could be possible here if the Fed doesn't uh, offer some uncertainty or some sense of dovishness from what this banking crisis will mean for the economy and inflation. Rick, what are the markets saying to you right now, Rick Santelli? Well, I think that what they're telling me is, is that 25 is baked in, 83%, 100%. Anything over about 60%, in my opinion, means that the markets are uh, content with that outcome. And that really is the issue. It isn't that the Fed looks to the market to say, okay, do what the market says. It's that they don't want to surprise the market. And especially at this point in history, you know, Janet Yellen calmed the markets, but there was an awful big price to pay. Exactly what is explicit, what is implicit, it certainly does remind me of the question of the difference between those two terms with regard to mortgages during the credit crisis. But in the end, if the market can be comfortable with a quarter, the Fed will deliver. But after that, Tyler, I think things start to get a bit dicey. We've seen interest rates reluctant to rise, especially in the longer maturities. That's a global phenomenon. The slowdown most likely is a global phenomenon. And with respect to banking, well, where's the deposits once they end up in large banks? Is this going to be a, a real shortage for activity in some of the community banks, some of those smaller businesses? There's nothing but questions ahead. We close the economy. We paid for the economy when it was closed. That down payment of trillions that Kelly pointed out purchased a whole lot of inflation. We guarantee everything under the sun and debt, debt is off the charts. What the markets are telling me is that somebody needs to be the responsible parent in the room because some of these Fed fund contracts are doing a real about face as we get towards the end of the year. Seth Carpenter, what's your expectation for today and what happens with the projections? So if, if they pause but still show rates on an upward uh, move, what, how does the market take that? And, and what about the reverse where they pause um, or whatever the opposite of what I just said was? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the, we started writing out a bunch of 
possible decision trees. What if they do this with one variable and something else with something else? And you quickly get tied up into lots of different outcomes. I think I think what's key here is, is a few things. Uh, we think as a baseline view that they're going to raise interest rates today. Uh, the market, as, as Rick was saying, has that mostly priced in. Uh, I think the question really does come down to inside that room, are they reading the developments in the banking sector as mostly systemic are mostly idiosyncratic. And I suspect looking at what the composition of that extra borrowing from the Fed was last week, looking at how little there were in sort of draws on swap lines this week, that they're probably going to come to the view. It's mostly uh, idiosyncratic and less systemic. And, and as a result, we have them hiking 25 basis points. But it's a real judgment call for them right now, because I think it's hard not enough time has passed for them to have complete conviction on what's going on with banks right now. Right. <clears throat> that brings us to Bajra to where rates go from here. Are we in a paradigm now where even if they hike more, long rates are going to drop? Absolutely. I think that's the, the, the price action you're going to see in the bond market is that if the Fed does increase the dots and suggest a higher terminal Fed funds rate, uh, you know, they had five to five and a quarter percent penciled in for this year. If they uh, keep those dots, it's going to be mostly a front end event in our, in our view. I think that the back end of the, of the yield curve is going to be much more focused on what happens to the impact of this of this bank, uh, banking crisis, if you will, on the broader markets. It's going to tighten lending standards. It's going to perhaps um, push the timing of a recession earlier than what people think. I mean, we had a recession penciled in for early 2024, that timeline might, might get pushed in earlier. Under those circumstances, I think that the long end of the yield curve is going to struggle to rise meaningfully from here, even if the sentiment improves. And even if, uh, for the most part, as Seth was saying, this turns out to be a very idiosyncratic risk in the banking system. Barry, let me turn to you. You're forecasting a quarter point hike, as most people uh, seem to be doing, and a pause. Let me ask you what a pause looks or sounds like. Hey, Tyler, I think it'll be very data dependent, uh, dependent on not just the inflation data, which is paramount, but also financial stability. Um, they'll also focus a lot less on tightening financial conditions. That's very counterproductive right now. And we aren't we aren't really talking about it, but I'm going to be watching very closely the um, shape of the yield curve, which earlier guests talked about the recession risk later in the year. And that's why it tilts down and also their expectation of long-term rates. At some point, they might change that. That'll affect something called R-star, and that's going to affect valuation in a great way. But mostly a data-dependent uh, pause, uh, waiting on, we won't see them again until May 3rd, uh, and then 25 basis points. Perhaps the thing that stands out most, Barry, in my notes about your position is that you believe that we are in a secular bear market that is going to last through the decade. Yeah, I mean, channeling uh, Alfred Kahn, some people call this a bear market rally or a bear trap. I don't care if they call it a banana. Uh, I'm not going to miss 10, 15, 17 percent rallies. So since last October, we've been bullish um, and uh, we've been calling for the low 4,000s. And that's still our target uh, between 41 and 43, midpoint 4,200 by April. Um, now, the issue is over the course of 10 years, we will have the P.E. and double the earnings and end up at the same point where we were at the start of 2022, which was around 4,800 S&P 500. And that gets into a lot of complex macro, but we've had flat decades before. We did one from 2000 to 2013, and we've done it in the 60s. So it looks like that kind of a setup to us, and we have to trade the range. 
What makes you so sure that we're not going to see a repeat of the 2010s, for instance, Barry, when the economy, you know, depending on how much worse this credit issue gets, the economy does poorly. It needs a lot of Fed support and basically sort of high tech fang, Bitcoin, all of these things have an incredible decade. Well, we just had one. It's kind of hard to have back to back incredible decades. Um, the the thing about it is higher valuation would be required. And I just don't see the room for that kind of parabolic valuation at this point. But there are some people out there who think this is like the summer of 98, where you had some financial problems. The Fed uh, cut this time they paused. Uh, the growth had one more rally in it. And we've been positive on growth since last October. There are only two trades, cyclical versus defensive and uh, growth versus value. And so there are four quadrants you can be in. And we've been more in the cyclical, the slight overweight in the uh, cyclical growth, which is your big tech and your consumer names. Dom, why don't we turn to you and, and, and give us your perspective on what the stock market is doing today and specifically how banks are performing and how they're likely to perform under various scenarios. So, so the scenario analysis is something that I'm sure if it's not happening, happening at an explicit level, it will be happening at an implicit level at certain parts of the Fed, Treasury, and everywhere else. The, the idea here is that we talk about the data-dependent Fed and everything else that's happening with regard to the marketplace right now. If there is a condition that develops where we do see a deteriorating string of economic data that shows that the U.S. economy is in fact slowing down markedly, then you have to reprice things overall. What's curious about the market action right now, especially the banks, if you strip those banks out, Overall, the market volatility picture right now, at least for the equity markets, has been relatively calm, even during the depths, if you want to call them those, short term, of the banking crisis tied to SVB, tied to what's happening with Credit Suisse. The VIX didn't spike to the same levels that we saw during the pandemic, certainly, certainly not during the great financial crisis. What you are seeing right now is this idea that we have a compression now of what the expectations are. The reason why the market action this afternoon is going to be key is because you have the statement of economic projections coming out, right? The dot plot, so to speak. The Fed policymakers are going to be out there trying to make a prediction about what things are going to look like. But there is so much noise around what those predictions are, could look like, and whether they have any kind of validity. And that's the reason why the markets are perhaps dampening a little bit more because there's just not a lot of activity happening because people say, hey, you know what? I don't want to take a huge bet right now. And by the way, the muscle memory, Ty, Kelly, that I've seen over the course of the last decade plus has meant when times are getting tough, there's been certain parts of the market that people flock to. Last year, yes, times were tough and they went to value stocks, oil and banks and whatnot, things like that. Now they've gone right back to the high quality balance sheet strong Apples and Microsofts of the world. And by the way, Apple and Microsoft combined as a weighting has never been a bigger weighting. And there has never been a two stock weighting that's been bigger than Microsoft and Apple at this point in the S&P 500. Great point. Subhadra, let me just end with you here because T-bill and chill was the whole theme of the investing universe until it blew up the banks. And I'm curious for those who are watching and thinking to themselves, OK, well, the Fed's going to keep hiking, I think. And so I'm going to keep getting better rates on my six month, one year, two years. Have we seen the peaks in these levels or not, do you think, for the people at, at home? You know, is there is there six month reinvestment risk suddenly that that maybe they only can get three and a half percent on these bills because of rate cuts? Um, or do you think they go higher? Have we put in the highs? Um, that's a very difficult question to answer, because if, the, if these idiosyncratic risks do obey, there's a chance 
that the Fed might hike and continue to hike till they have inflation under control. Um, broadly speaking, really, the risk is that uh, at least the market is pricing in that risk of a cut in the second half of this year, perhaps a little bit premature, given the inflationary environment that we're currently in. But broadly speaking, it feels like uh, even if there is an opportunity to leg into bonds in the very front end, that's going to be very short-lived because the market's going to be looking towards the potential for a meaningful slowdown and cuts coming in later on this year, if not early next year, when the U.S. economy goes into a recession. Right. Interesting times. Get it while you can, I guess. Uh, Steve left to go uh, to go get ready for the meeting. And we thank you all so much for your time today. Barry Bannister, Subhadra Rajapa, Seth Carpenter, Dom Chu, and Rick Santelli. Coming up next, the rate hikes are starting to bite the consumer with credit card rates at record highs, mortgage and auto loans a lot more expensive now than a year ago. We'll tell you where they might be headed next. And with about 45 minutes to go until the big Fed decision, the Dow has actually been headed towards session lows, down 117 points after giving up the green we saw a little bit earlier on. This special edition of the exchange is back in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to our special coverage of the Fed's meeting today. The Fed hiking rates going from zero about a year ago to around 4.6% today. And that, of course, is having a, a big impact on American consumers. Credit card rates are at record highs while savings are on the decline. Mortgages and auto loans much more expensive than they were a year ago. Let's talk about all of that with CNBC's Diana Olick, Phil LeBeau, along with Bankrate.com's Greg McBride. Diana, let's start with you and where mortgage rates are and where they may go from here. Diana. Well, Tyler, they've been on a bit of a wild ride over the last few months for sure, but buyer demand seems to be hanging on. Mortgage applications to buy a home rose 2% last week compared with the previous week. Purchase demand has been rising pretty steadily despite big swings in mortgage rates. Take a look. The average rate on the 30-year fixed peaked last October at just over 7.25%. That stopped home sales right in their tracks. It then started falling back in December and January. Yesterday, we got the read on existing home sales in February, which shot up an incredible 14.5%, the first gain in a year and the biggest jump since the start of the pandemic. Now, those sales were based on contracts signed in December and January when rates had dropped back. Now, rates, of course, have started climbing again. They took a brief fallback for a few days when the SVB news hit, but headed right back up again this week to around 6.75% as of yesterday. That rate will likely move decidedly today after the Fed announcement. We just don't know yet in which direction. The fact, though, that mortgage demand ha from homebuyers has been rising despite the rate swings may mean, may mean 
that buyers are getting used to a new normal. Back to you guys. Diana, thank you. Let's get to Phil LeBeau now with the auto loan fallout. This is one, Phil, I'm starting to hear a lot of people complaining about. What can you tell us? Well, they're not happy about the cost of vehicles is the main complaint, and that means a higher monthly payment. But it's not all because of interest rates. Yes, interest rates for an auto loan are higher. In fact, here's the latest data from Edmonds. Look at it where it is right now compared to March of last year. Considerably higher for both new and used vehicles. By the way, the new, new rate, while it's higher than it was pre-pandemic, it's not dramatically higher compared to pre-pandemic. And then there's the question of transaction prices. Now, this is the main complaint you hear from people when it comes to new vehicles. It costs too much. If I'm going out to buy a new vehicle, my monthly payment is likely to be $730 approximately. That's the average of where it stands right now. And that is up 32% compared to pre-pandemic. But guess what? A lot of this is because, A, we don't see many compact cars out there. Sedans are gone. You see more electric vehicles being sold. The cost of vehicles, it is higher. Therefore, the transaction price is higher. And as far as inventory, we are seeing an increase here. So that, in theory, should mean that we should see lower prices, at least a pullback of some sort over the next couple of months. Inventory up 49% compared to July. And incentives are starting to creep up, now up to $1,474 on average, highest it's been in the last year. And yes, you have the main automakers. We're talking about those who have a sizable legacy portfolio of internal combustion engine vehicles. We're talking about the Toyotas, GMs, Fords, Stellantis. All of them are increasing production. But the bottom line is this, guys. Interest rates, while they may edge a little bit higher from here, that's not the main reason that the monthly payment is at an all-time high. It's because the vehicles are priced where they are right now at nearly $50,000 on average. And one more time, Phil, why are the prices so much higher? Is it because the mix of cars being sold is so much different? They are bigger. They are not... <laughs> Uh, compact, subcompact sedans. Is, what is it most? That, that's a big part of it, Tyler. I mean, look, we are a country that wants SUVs, crossovers, and pickup trucks. The average pickup truck, I haven't checked it in the last couple of months. I think it's like $56,000, $57,000. That's the average of what people are paying in this country for a pickup truck. And by the way, you hear people all the time, they say, boy, if there was a vehicle for $39,000, I would buy it in a heartbeat. You know what happens if a vehicle starts at $39,000? Nobody walks out of the dealership at that price. You end up paying $47,000, $49,000. We are a country that is conditioned to not buying base models. We always upgrade, and that's why the prices keep moving higher. Very clear explanation. Phil, thanks very much, Diana. Thanks to you as well. You know, credit card balances have hit an all-time high just as rates are rising uh, everywhere, thanks to the Fed's rate hikes, home equity loans, they're costing now around 8%. This according to bank rate. 30-year mortgages, around 6.5%. Used car loans, uh, over uh, 10%. And credit cards, they are over 20%. For more, let's bring in Greg McBride, chief financial analyst at bankrate.com. Greg, how are these rising rates ultimately going to affect consumers? Are they eventually going to cut back on their spending? Must they? The discretionary spending, I think, is very suspect, uh, Tyler, because of the fact that more and more of the household budget is being imp impacted by inflation, but then also these higher interest costs. You know, we've seen credit card balances go up because increasingly households are having to lean on the credit card for necessary expenses. So you have more people carrying balances, 
higher balances, uh, uh, aggregate balances we've ever seen at a time when interest rates are the highest. And so, you know, even if they're not out buying cars or buying homes, servicing the, that existing variable rate debt has become increasingly costly. Have consumers gone, I mean, what explains the, the rise in credit card balances? Because during the pandemic, obviously, savings were rising. Now, what, what's happened to turn, to flip that switch? Particularly for lower and moderate income households, uh, you've seen balances going up dramatically, uh, credit card balances, but the savings balances have been coming down. So, you know, although there's a lot of talk about pent-up savings, a lot of that is at the higher end of the income and wealth spectrum. Mm-hmm. Lower and middle-income households have really been stretched by inflation. That's dented the savings, if not if completely erased it. And a lot of that now is that spending is ending up on credit cards, and it's happening at the worst possible time with these high rates. Greg, where do we go from here? Uh, do you expect uh, the Fed to keep hiking? And can you talk a little bit actually about what you've seen in terms of people taking money out of their banks and putting it into other instruments that offer better yields right now? We actually see pretty high demand in, in terms of bank deposits uh, because of this. there's such a yield pickup. Uh, online banks are paying four and a half, five percent right now, and that's federally insured. So particularly with the drop off in Treasury yields over the last couple of weeks, there's now a substantive advantage if you're looking at online savings accounts or the top yielding CDs versus treasuries or, or money funds. Right. And, and, and in other words, so you're not are you seeing any slowdown or or I guess let me ask it this way. Are, are you seeing now that people have to ratchet up yields everywhere because they're all now kind of competing for deposits or no? No, it's still pretty isolated. We have seen some of the smaller community or, or regional banks. They have bumped up deposits in, in recent weeks, but even there, still very much the exception rather than the Very interesting. Greg McBride, thank you for checking in with us, especially today. We appreciate it from BayGreat.com. Now, we're counting down to the big Fed decision at the top of the hour. The major averages are lower right now. Uh, the Dow started this hour pretty much around session lows, but GameStop is soaring. Let's check back in with Dominic Chu at the New York Stock Exchange. Dom. What can you tell us? All right. So, Kelly, Tyler, here's your market reset right now. As you point out, we've lost a lot of steam in the markets overall, and we are drifting lower, although it's fractional. So, again, still that wait-and-see mentality. The Dow Industrial is down about 100 points, one-third of 1%. The S&P now below the 4,000 level, down about 7 points. And the NASDAQ down just about flat on the session right now. But if you take a look at where the sector dynamic is, it's all over the board, all over the place. The relative leaders so far in trading today have been in certain places places in the economy like technology and consumer staples. Very different ends of the risk spectrum there, right? Meanwhile, some of the biggest laggards are a cyclical like energy down half a percent and real estate down about one and a half percent as well. So a very interesting mix developing as traders jockey for position. Now, the banks are a huge focus still. We saw outsides gains yesterday in many of the financial institutions that have gotten beaten up the most in the wake of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS. First Republic Bank is down 4% right now. Charles Schwab, the broker-dealer bank holding company, down 4% as well. PNC Financial and U.S. Bank Corp. These are interesting here because both these stocks got called signature or top picks by Mike Mayo at Wells Fargo this morning. And then the regional bank ETFs down about 2% right now. And if you're looking for that stock of the day, It has to be outside the S&P 500, the OG, the original meme stock, if you will, GameStop shares. They are up 41% right now, and that's off the best levels of the day. A profit they turned for the first time in two years. 
But you take a look at these shares, a volatile for sure, but watch those GameStop shares, guys, up 41% right now. Tile sent things back over to you. All right, thanks very much, Dom Chu. Still ahead, we're going to head to Capitol Hill and a top member of the House Financial Services Committee who is calling for the government to temporarily insure all bank deposits. Congressman Blaine Lutkemeyer is live on the other side of this break. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Regulators, including the Fed, have already taken massive steps to backstop the banks, but one congressman says it's not enough. Missouri Representative Blaine Lukemeyer is calling on the government to temporarily insure every bank deposit in the country to help bring confidence back to the system. He's been a champion for small banks in Washington for decades. After 30 years as a state banking examiner and a community banker himself, he says a broad-based guarantee could be the move to stop more small banks from going under. Let's bring him in now. Uh, he's also a member of the House Financial Services Committee, I should add and a ranking member of, uh, what else here, the Subcommittee on Consumer Protection and Financial Institutions. Congressman, welcome. Welcome. Good to be with you. Thank you. So you really have a firsthand perspective on these troubles. You know, people will say we obviously can't afford to insure every deposit in the banks, but we learned during the pandemic that sometimes just knowing the backstop is there means you don't have to really insure any of them. Um, How do you think such a system like this would work? Well, I've suggested this as a possible scenario of ways to minimize some of the the deposit movement that's out there. Uh, You know, I I said a 30 to 60 day period uh, might give us a chance to get a good handle on exactly the depth and breadth of our problem. Uh, It's one of the tools in the toolbox for the regulators to think about. They can request that of Congress. Congress would have to do this. But I think we saw in the the 2010-2012 timeframe that it lends some stability to the system. Uh, But I think we need to have the data at this point to understand whether this is actually a viable solution or not. I think there's other other things that we could probably do, but I think this particular solution that I think uh, is something that could be considered, it needs to have the data to show the amount of, of deposits that are moving and who they're moving from and who they're moving to. Right. So uh, I think the broader question is, do you think enough has been done by regulators to instill confidence in the banking system? Well, I think I think they started off real well. I think they did what they thought was necessary. They didn't really know the depth of the problem. There's a tremendous liquidity problem in the system. And we had about uh, uh, $230 billion that flowed from federal home loan banks last week, another 160, I believe it was, from the federal uh, reserve uh, facility. So you're looking at close to $400 billion that flew into the system to provide the liquidity that wasn't there uh, at the week before to be able to shore up the banks, give them the, that protection they needed. Uh, so is that, the, is that the solution? It could be. I think we need to get the data from the FDIC to understand, again, how, much, how many deposits are, are fleeing and from whom they're fleeing and to whom they're, they're fleeing. Congressman, if I'm not mistaken, didn't we do sort of precisely what you're proposing in the 2008 banking crisis, i.e. insure deposits above $250,000 for a temporary period? And what was the effect then? 
Yeah, I think that's that's what I've alluded to a moment ago. Back in 2009, August of 2009, uh, the FDIC at that time had the authority to do this. In Dodd-Frank, we took that authority away from them and did it ourselves in 2010, extended to the end of 2012, and at that point it ran out, and right now, Nobody, none of the regulators have this authority. Only Congress has the authority to put this back in place. So, again, it's a tool in the toolbox of the regulators that we want to, if, if they request it, it's something we should consider. At this point, again, we need the data to show if it's necessary and what, what kind of a problem we have. But I think the amount of liquidity that flowed into the system last week shows that we do have a problem. Uh, and is, is this a viable tool? I don't know. I think we need the data to, to figure it out. Would there be, I mean, would you back any form of expanded guarantees here? So, and does this have to work its way through Congress where we see something like uh, a two-year unlimited cap or uh, what, what do you think the right level would be? Half a million, a million? Would it depend on the client? Would it depend on the bank? Well, I think that's going to be thrashed out by Congress, obviously. I know the Midside Bank Coalition is requesting a two-year um, guarantee on everything. I personally am not in favor of that, but I think uh, if we can sit down and figure out, again, it's important to know that what your problem is and the depth of your problem to be able to figure out the right solution. Again, this is, when I was asked this question 10 days ago, my response was, if we have, if we have the problem that we think we have, this may be a short-term solution to give us time to think about it. Uh, is, this, is this today the right solution? I don't think we still have the data, although we do see from the liquidity problem that was obviously from last week's uh, investments by the Federal Home Loan Bank and Federal Reserve, that there is a problem there. So again, if we get the right data to show the depth of the problem, uh, and where the problem is manifesting itself from, then I think we can design a, a solution for that that's actually going to work. And maybe the liquidity problem is solved by the ways that were, were uh, manifested itself last week. We, at this point, it's still a kind of a, a guessing game, and so we'll, we'll see once how this goes. But I think we're in a period of time where we need to be very calm, very collected, Everybody's fine. The, the, the banking system is very fine. It's, it's very solid. But obviously, it's under stress right now as a result of, number one, our economy, and number two, because of this banking situation where we've got some of the banks are upside down with their investments versus, versus their, um, their interest rates on those and the liquidity problems they have within the bank. So uh, it's a situation we need to be very careful with uh, so we don't exacerbate that. What do you think, having been on the inside of the banking system and the regulatory process, what do you think went wrong? What did the regulators or supervisors miss, miss and why? Well, one of the basic tenets of, of being a regulator is you look for, you look for their, their, their spread of risk on their investments and you look for concentrations of credit, you look for concentrations of deposits, and Silicon Valley Bank checked all three of those all boxes three. and nothing, yeah. was, all thing, nothing was done. I mean, that's pretty basic. Um, and this is a large bank. Most large banks have a, an examiner or two or three or a team that sits in them every day and watches and monitors this stuff. So what are these guys doing? Drinking, co drinking coffee and eating donuts? Somebody was asleep with the switch. We do know from New York Times article, it was, oh, I think, over the weekend newspapers, that there was some regulatory concerns about this, but nobody took any sort of action. Including the um, auditors, by the way. I mean, not that they would be the ones taking action, but KPMG signed off on this 10 days before it collapsed. Well, again, I mean, this, this is... In, in this in this environment, and this this is a very this is a teaching moment for everybody in the financial services industry right here. In this day and time, in this environment, when you have social media, 
they could go out there on Twitter or Facebook or some other sort of social media website or, or platform and begin to talk about taking monies out of bank and per perpetrate a run. Remember, this, this bank lost $42 million within a period of hours. $42 billion within a period of hours. And so this is something every bank is going to have to take into consideration when they look at their portfolio. And every regulator is going to have to stop and think about this. What can happen if, some, if there's a run on the bank if this situation exists in other banks or other financial institutions. This is a new thing that people are gonna to have to take a look at, and I'm talking to my own colleagues about this mm -hmm. and saying, look, we've got, we've got a situation here that hasn't happened before. We need to be taking a look at this new social media in a way that people are interacting with each other and how quickly things can change. So therefore, your bank is gonna to have to be almost perfect. You cannot be outside uh, your, your normal, what you would think normal way of doing business normal way of taking risk, a normal way of spreading risk, if you expect to be able to survive in an environment where instantaneously you could be in trouble. Yeah. Somebody could take advantage of you. So very interesting this point. is a, this is a very, very unique situation that we're in, and I think we're going to have to start thinking in different terms. Congressman Luke Kamara, thank you for your time today and your clear <laughs> explanations. Uh, we're very grateful to you for being with us. Appreciate it. And still ahead, speaking of expanded FDI insurance, uh, depositors at one online bank might be uh, breathing a little bit easier. The news pushing shares higher and making it one of the best performers in the global ex-fintech ETF today. The name and the details are next. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. We were just talking about some of the banking problems, but take a look at shares of SoFi, which are in the green today after they've expanded some of the FDIC insurance they're offering depositors. Uh, let's get to Christina Partsinevelis with some of the details here. Christina, how can SoFi increase FDIC insurance? Okay, well, it announced today all checking and savings accounts will be able to access up to $2 million of FDIC insurance versus the standard 250000 that we've been talking so much about. So let's just say you happen to have $2 bucks to your name and you want it all insured. Previously, you would have had to create eight separate bank accounts at different financial institutions from, let's say for me, I'm Canadian, RBC to TD. But SoFi is saying, don't do that. Now you can stick all of your money with us and you'll be insured up to $2 million. They're able to do that because they have partnered with 12 other banks from Citizens Bank to HBC Bank to create the SoFi FDIC insurance network. And depositors won't have to pay higher fees for this either. You have to keep in mind though, these uh, 12 banks are gonna be on a rotational basis, so that may change too. And this is a question that I asked SoFi uh, and they were great, they were responding to me right before the show. I said, if I happen to have $2 million in SoFi and then another another $250,000 at HSBC, will I get insured beyond $2 million? And they said no. But this is a move about regaining trust within the banking system that we are seeing right now. It's, it's a big move, uh, a high-profile one. What's, what's interesting, though, Christina, what you said, it almost gives people even less clarity on whether their money's safe and, and which of those 12 banks might be holding it. And does that double up with their, you know, and if the banks can rotate. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's Maybe that's where the, the appetite is going, but maybe people actually want more information. I guess for, for, for this in particular situation, they were the first out of the gates, and they're saying that if you put your money all in SoFi, you're insured up into $2 million. So that's adding some type of confidence there. But for the other 12, it's true. They will rotate out. I'm unsure of the time frame, though. So you'll have to keep – investors will have to pay attention. Yeah, exactly. Christina, thank you very much. Again, SoFi up about 2% on this news today. 
Uh, Christina Partsinevelis reporting. All righty, coming up, we are less than 15 minutes out from the Fed's decision, and former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart says there are only two viable options on the table for Chair Powell. He'll join us next to discuss. We'll be right back. Welcome back to a special Fed edition of The Exchange, uh, the most important Fed decision in recent memory now, less than 15 minutes away. Uh, and one former Fed president says Jay Powell and company have only two options here. And he says he thinks that one is looking increasingly likely. Joining us now is Dennis Lockhart, former president at the Atlanta Fed. Mr. Lockhart, welcome. We're so glad you could be with us today. Uh, what is the likelihood that you see as uh, the most probable right now? Well, I think the 25 basis point move is most probable. I think the markets pretty much have that right. But I actually think this is a very close call. And and for the committee, it'll be a judgment call. And very importantly, Tyler, we, the public, don't have access to all the information that the committee is pouring over yesterday and today to make their decision. And that information, of course, pertains to the, the their assessment of the vulnerability of the banking system and uh, whether this is going to be something that stabilizes quickly or could continue. We don't know what they're what they're studying on that question. And the I think the decision revolves around your answer to that question. Take us inside the room or rooms where these presentations and discussions are taking place. Who are the Fed uh, voters on the Open Market Committee hearing from? What is the nature of the discussion? How spirited or not disagreeable, but how contentious can they get? Take me, give me some color of what it's really like to be there. Well, I guess my experience is a little bit dated, but in my experience over 10 years, uh, these are pretty formal meetings. They are highly structured and they follow the same pattern each meeting. Uh, each person at the table, whether a voter in the case of the, the Reserve Bank presidents or just a participant, not a voter in this cycle, all 19 of them have uh, uh, some time to speak on both the state of the economy and what the policy decision should be, as well as what some of the communications should be around the policy decision. And so you you have these go arounds and each person speaks but in my experience, there's not a lot of back and forth debate. There's not a lot of interrupting other people. Mm. There's not there's mm -hmm. not a lot of spirited uh, activity. It's a fairly formal hearing of what everyone thinks. So in, in that case, let's say I, I'm up there and I kind of know because I watch CNBC and whatever. I know that everyone's expecting 25 and I kind of listen to my fellow colleagues. I think they're all going to go 25, but it sounds like it's not that explicit if I wanted to stand up and say, guys, I think we should pause, I think I'm, I think we should cut. Would I have an opportunity to make that case or would people just nod politely and move on? Oh, yes, you'd have the, the opportunity to make that case in your particular time of, of speaking. Uh, but that's a relatively short period of time, a few minutes. There is some discussion that goes on, but I just don't want to give the impression that this is a free for all in terms of debate back and forth. Uh, often the chair, and, and I think Jay Powell no doubt plays this role strongly, 
tries to summarize what he has heard, in this case he, um, and uh, then sort of lead the committee to the consensus that he believes has come out from the discussion um, and uh, make some final proposals about how things should be handled, and uh, then there's a vote. The vote at the end is, in, in most cases, in, in many respects, somewhat perfunctory. It's not a big dramatic moment. Yeah, you usually have, you might have one dissent, two dissents, right? And rarely more than that. Rarely more than two. Um, yeah. You know, I was a, I was a member of the committee or participant in the committee right. where we were we didn't have a full uh, contingent of governors, so there were only ten voters in those cases. But generally yeah. speaking, the chairs are are well, you know, they're comfortable with up to two dissents. You know, beyond two becomes a little bit dicey because right. it projects to the public that the the committee is really quite divided. divided. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's pause there, uh, Mr. Lockhart. We do have the uh, the pleasure of your company uh, after the top of the hour, after the decision. So we'll welcome you back then. And we thank you for your time right now. Uh, we will be right back uh, after this. Less than 10 minutes out uh, from one of the most consequential decisions in some time. A very special Fed edition of Power Lunch is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 